Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, a podcast by the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And we're going to talk about President Biden's first 100 days with regard to immigration today. This 100 days idea is something from FDR's administration. You know, they were, it was a way of talking about there being an emergency and they were immediately going to jump on the problem. And so they use this idea of 100 days to push things through Congress quickly. And subsequent presidents have all adopted this in their own kind of lame way. Uh, everybody does it, Republicans and Democrats. And President Biden is no exception. Talked about what he's going to do in the first 100 days. For instance, he asked Americans to keep wearing masks only for 100 days. So I guess that means... On April 30th, maybe we can all take our masks off. I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. But immigration, obviously, figured into this as well. Now, it didn't really figure that much into the campaign. Uh, obviously, everybody kind of understood that their two candidates had very different views. But the issue, especially at the border, was you know calm significantly compared to what it had been before. So neither Trump nor Biden really talked about it that much. Joe Biden didn't hide what he was going to do, but he didn't talk about it that much except to immigration-related groups. So most voters really didn't you know, basically have a good idea of what was going to happen, at least in any specific sense of what President Biden was going to do. Well, now we know. And in the president's first 100 days, he's done a whole series of things, probably more than most people get, about immigration. And we have a new backgrounder laying that out in excruciating detail. We're not going to go over it like a phone book today, but we're going to talk about it some. That backgrounder, it's called, obviously, President Biden's First 100 Days, Swift Action to Change Immigration Policy. It's on our website at cis.org, for those of you who want to go into more detail on it, but we're going to kind of go over it a little bit and talk about what the implications of all of this is with the author, Rob Law. He is at the center, the Director of Regulatory Affairs and Policy, but for the purposes of this report, what's important is that he spent the past four years in the DHS in the part of Homeland Security called U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS. Sometimes they just call it CIS over there, but we're the actual first CIS. They came along years after we were around. And he was in the office that dealt with policy. What that means is they wrote regulations. They did, you know, really a lot of the setting out of what the policy was going to be that the agency pursued. And in fact, he rose to be director of the policy office. So basically in charge of overseeing the writing of regulations, which, you know, frankly, is where governance happens, because Congress, even if it does anything, they pass a law that says, okay, you write some regulations about this. Writing the regulations is really what matters, frankly. So Rob uh, is eminently qualified to have done this, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, what President Biden has done in his first 100 days. So uh, welcome, Rob. Uh, I'm glad uh, we're kicking off this podcast, the inaugural podcast, uh, with, with you. And so I think the first thing, the obvious thing to talk about that's in the news and what have you is the border. What has President Biden done relating to border policy and, you know, maybe even more importantly, 
what does that mean? What has that caused? How much has the president's actions and comments actually caused a lot of the problems we're seeing at the border? Sure, great. Thanks, thanks, Mark. Um, and and yes, no no doubt that the Biden administration has wasted no time uh, taking numerous executive actions um, as early as day one uh, on the immigration front, uh, specifically uh, border policy. From a outset matter, the president immediately started talking about amnesty. Just saying the words amnesty already uh, sort of gets the ears alerted to would-be illegal aliens, the smugglers, and the cartels. So you're starting to sense this could be our time to come. And then on, on day one, President Biden ends the national emergency that President Trump had declared at the border. And what that meant was a complete halting of construction of the physical wall at, at the southern border. So there's your barrier to prevent that unlawful entry. And, and President Biden says there is there's no longer an emergency, not another taxpayer dollar shall be spent to build the wall. The very wall that he himself as a senator in 2006 had voted to fund, and yet here we are many years later, still not complete. And he'd been joined in voting for the wall by then-Senator Obama and Senator Schumer as well, right? Among others. It was, right. uh, you know, border security used to be a broadly bipartisan effort, and I believe it was at least 80 senators voted in favor of the Secure Fence Act back in the day. But these are very different times. And so combined with stopping to build the physical barrier, President Biden also did away with what's known as Title 42 uh, authority. This is an emergency national uh, health emergency authority that the Centers for Disease Control has uh, that allows for essentially the turning away of all aliens at the border. So in other words, without hearings, without any fuss or bother, just turn around and push them back. That's right. And of course, this was completely necessary with COVID-19 as a global pandemic. You know, the, our country, as many others, sort of essentially locked down their borders. You, you had to control the spread, and part of that meant you can't bring in new people. And so Title 42 helped really reduce the number of aliens that were apprehended at the border. But by loosening that Title 42 authority, um, specifically a blanket exemption for unaccompanied alien children, and then allowing most family units to come in as well, essentially really only applying Title 42 to adults. Single adults. Single adults. Without kids. Single right. adults, correct. That completely changed the narrative, which now said you can come into the country, even though you don't have a legal right to be here. We're going to bring you in while we go through the removal process. And once that happened, that's how we came to get the border crisis that we have today. The, the floodgates essentially opened up. And in February alone, over 100,000 aliens were apprehended at the border. And then very quickly from there, it jumped to 170,000 in, in March, which is the most recent numbers that we have available. Now, what's the, I mean, what you're saying is that this created an incentive for people to come. I mean, they're still getting apprehended, but then they're let go into the U.S., lots of them. I mean, other than the guys just traveling alone. Why is that an incentive? The, the number one goal of economic migrants is just simply to be let into the United States. It's a vast country, and there are insufficient ICE resources to remove the entire illegal alien population. So your ticket in by claiming asylum or anything else for that matter, that's all they're looking for. And then you basically have a head start to disappear 
into the interior and most likely it'll be very challenging for you to actually be removed to your home country. Part of the way that President Trump tried to discourage this and ended this practice was uh, through a, a series of initiatives, the first one being the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, or Remain in Mexico, which, as the name uh, implies, an alien who claimed asylum uh, and didn't have a fear of being in Mexico was required to wait in Mexico until their hearings uh, in the United States. Uh, additionally, there were agreements that the United States government made under the Trump administration with the various Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, which said if you're an asylum seeker, say from El Salvador, through these ACAs, we could bring you to Honduras or Guatemala, where presumably you should not be fearing persecution. And, and it more regionalizes the humanitarian uh, relief if, if there generally are an asylum seeker. President Biden, his administration very quickly did away with all of those mechanisms. And then it became far more enticing to just say the words asylum or, or credible fear. That's the real buzzword that kind of gets you, gets you in the door. And you don't have enough detention capacity for all of these aliens. So there's only one option. They get released into the interior. And that's essentially mission accomplished for, for most of them. And so in, in his first 100 days, President Biden ended these. I, I, my sense is the Remain in Mexico program probably was the one that was most effective, but then also getting rid of it was the most problematic because the point obviously is they could ask for asylum, but then they had to go wait on the other side of the border for their hearing date to come up. And if your whole point was to get lost in the U.S. or go join your relatives in suburban Washington, D.C., waiting in Tijuana or Juarez is not what you were looking for. Exactly. That policy that was introduced by, by the Trump administration took away one of the biggest enticing pull factors of, you know, economic migrants posing as, as asylum seekers. And this continuing that is probably, as you say, the number one cause of the border crisis. Now, Something the president and his administration have been talking about a lot, and this is what I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about what they did on this, is this idea of root causes. In other words, address the reason people are leaving. And in my opinion, it's frankly kind of fairy tale unicorn territory because it's not, first of all, it's not likely to work, but even if it is, it would be 20, 30 years before it made any difference. But even in this first hundred days period, they've done something on this. And so if you could just briefly talk about what they've done with regard to this root causes concept to reduce immigration and whether it's likely to be making any difference. Sure. I mean, this whole concept of, of root causes is to suggest that it's not the United States behavior that is causing the surge, that it's, it's something else outside, it's pull, outside it's of a, our, it's exactly. A, it's, it's a, a push. push, not a pull. Yeah. Right? It's outside of our control. So it's, it's somebody else's it's fault. And no doubt the Northern Triangle countries are far poorer than the United States and in many instances more violent than certain parts of, of the country. But the, the Biden administration's answer to that is to send $4 billion of American taxpayer funds to these countries over the next four years. Well, part of the problem with the governments of these countries is there's rampant corruption. I mean, even the Biden administration acknowledges that these are corrupt governments. So sending money to corrupt officials does not make the corruption go away. It just enriches corrupt officials. So we really have no clear idea how this money is, is to be spent. 
which runs the risk that it will be squandered and there will be nothing that will be accomplished, certainly not in the short term and probably not in the, in the long term unless they can articulate a plan that shows that these taxpayer dollars are going to be targeted and used in a responsible manner that will, I guess, improve the lifestyle of aliens in their actual home country. And so far, I mean, obviously that $4 billion hasn't gone there, but I mean, they, the administration submitted a budget, right, that had a certain amount of money for Central America requested. And USAID has sent some money already, some actual money to address this. And the vice president is now the root causes czar, I guess. In other words, her job is to address root causes somehow, although apparently the first part of the border that she went to was New Hampshire. So I think she got the wrong, had the wrong border in mind. But so they've done some things so far on this root causes issue, but not that much. And like you said, probably not likely to do much of anything anyway. Now, that's all the border stuff. And everybody gets that. It's in the news. Anybody who follows this, anybody who's listening to us probably has some basic familiarity with what's going on at the border. But in this 100-day period, the president's also made some significant interior enforcement changes. And if we could just sort of briefly maybe talk about what those are, what are some of the most important ones? Sure, absolutely. Um, and, and again, this goes to the whole picture. Once you can get into the border and you're in the interior, what, what happens next? Uh, is the immigration laws going to actually be applied against uh, aliens who, who have no lawful basis to be here? And on day one, President Biden signed an executive order that rescinded a, a Trump executive order, which essentially said that all legal aliens are a priority. Now, what that, of course, meant in practice was for deportation, for deportation. Yeah. Yes. So under the Trump policy, of course, you're going to prioritize the worst factors. But if you run into, you know, just your essentially run of the mill legal alien in the course of an enforcement action, you're not going to look the other way. You're going to take them too. Which under President Obama, they were, in fact, required, right, to let go people, illegal immigrants they found in the course of doing their, you know, high priority operations, right? Exactly. Under the Obama administration, if you were not a priority, you were off limits. So President Trump said, everyone who is subject to deportation, if we come across you, we are going to enforce the laws against you. Now, President Biden comes in and says, not only are we doing away with that, we're going to introduce a 100-day freeze of all deportations with a very narrow exception, and then redefine um, their version of priority enforcement um, to be even even narrower than what was under the Obama administration, if, if even if that's even possible. But that's that's where we are, that so few illegal aliens are now subject to, to deportation that, that they have essentially defunded ICE without being as upfront about it as certain members of Congress call for. Now, there's an interesting thing that you had in the study that this has had an effect even on the number of people that the Biden administration acknowledges should be deported, that there's fewer of them even being deported. If you could talk a little bit about that. That's right. Yes. You know, it, it seems that based off of the new priorities that ICE can't even find priority aliens to, to enforce the law against. And the number of removals is absolutely plummeted in, in just, you know, 100 days. It's about 50 percent less than it previously was. And more specifically, within the first seven weeks of the, the Biden administration, priority arrests are down 75 percent. So these are people convicted of violent crimes, for instance. In other words, that's what, what are some what are the kind of people that they are willing to deport? 
Sure. Those, those national security, public safety threats, recent border crossers, which they define as November 1st, 2020, and then aggravated felons who are also considered to be a public safety threat. So if you're just an aggravated felon, <laughs> you might not be a priority. But if you're an aggravated felon who is also affirmatively determined to be a public safety threat actively, then you now will, will fall within those priorities. And so even those kind of people, they're deporting fewer of, in other words. That's, that's correct. 75% fewer in the first seven weeks compared to the same period in 2020. And additionally, non-priority arrests, unsurprisingly, are down 80% compared to last year. And in a full year period right now, priority arrests have already dropped more than 30%. And that number will probably continue um, to grow. And one of the things, and again, this is, we're looking at President Biden's first 100 days in immigration, that you highlighted in the background, or which is on our website at cis.org, is that they canceled this initiative that was actually going to be looking for illegal alien, or maybe some of them legal alien, but deportable because they committed a crime, sex offenders. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. There, I mean, this was just absolutely uh, sort of I think, real eye-opener for the American people when uh, the Washington Post reported that what was known as Operation Talon, and this was an initiative developed by ICE career officials whose job it is to identify and remove deportable aliens, had a, a very targeted effort to identify, detain, and remove sex offenders. And within days of DHS Secretary Mayorkas being confirmed, it was abruptly called off. And by calling it off, you, you now have introduced the possibility that you're now not going to know where these criminal alien sex offenders are. At, at that moment that they were about to go, you knew exactly where they were, and most likely you were going to get them. Now that this has been called off and it's been made publicly available, you know, if you're a criminal alien sex offender, you say, it might be time for me to relocate somewhere else. And now it, it completely undoes all of the work that started in the Trump administration to build the case, to be prepared to make this an effective enforcement you know, mechanism. And if sex offenders aren't uh, considered a, a priority under this administration, it, it does make you wonder who, who, is. who, who exactly is. Yeah, I mean, and so, and, and the, I mean, the bottom line here is with regard to this interior enforcement issue, the line that the president has taken and all of his allies is that the aggressive effort to deport people who are illegal aliens is deporting regular dishwashers who just happen to have some problem with the law, or maybe not even a problem with the law. And so the point was, to this kind of deportation pause, is that regular non-rapist illegal aliens should not be tracked down and removed. And even though I think, I mean, I disagree, obviously, because anybody, you're deportable at all times if you're an illegal alien, but at least there's a certain logic to that. But what you're saying, and what seems to be the case, is that because of these first 100-day actions, even the kind of illegal aliens that everybody does want to deport are not being deported. And so, you know, my sense is the they don't probably put it to themselves this way, but their perspective is that better a thousand sex offender illegal aliens be able to stay than one ordinary dishwasher be deported. In other words, you know, they want to make sure that no one who's not a 
rapist or drug dealer gets deported so that, and if that means that rapists and drug dealers also get to stay, they're okay with that. And that's that, appalling. That it is. And it's, it's as if they're, they're making a determination how, how bad of an offense is, is bad enough to, to warrant removal. And if it's not bad enough, you run the risk that the next offense that that criminal alien commits is, is even worse. Right. And with every alien that you had the opportunity to remove and you, and you don't, and they commit further uh, offenses, those were all preventable if you had just enforced the law. Right, right. Now, uh, another area of these actions in the first 100 days that really do have significant consequences is something that you would have been more directly involved with as the policy director. These are matters relating to legal immigration and the various rules for legal immigration, what have you. And the one that I really got my attention are things related to welfare use, the uh, public charge rule and the affidavit of support stuff. So if you could briefly tell us what did the Biden administration do with regard to that? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the concept of the public charge ground of inadmissibility has been a part of U.S. immigration law. Just explain that too. For, that's, yeah, yeah. Exactly. For, for over 100 years. And essentially what it means is if you are inadmissible and ineligible to get a green card, if you are basically not self-sufficient. So public charge is a very archaic sounding term. And the, the best the government had ever done pre-Trump administration was the Clinton administration issued a, a memo to define, to define what, that means. Yeah. what that means. And that required mm-hmm. primary dependence on cash assistance. But what that excluded was what is considered non-cash welfare, such as housing assistance and, and food assistance. And, and so there was a, a lot of, of welfare benefits being accessed um, by aliens that just seemed to be inconsistent with the the philosophy of, of self-sufficiency uh, in our immigration law. So in other words, you had people in public housing on food stamps getting Medicaid that the government notionally, fictionally considered self-sufficient. Exactly. And that gave them the ability to get their green card and eventually citizenship. So under the Trump administration, we put forward a, a proposed regulation through the requirements under the Administrative Procedure Act and redefined how to interpret public charge and it required, and it included uh, consideration of non-cash welfare benefits, and it looked to your likelihood of of use over a twelve-month period within a three-year period type of thing. There's a formula, unfortunately, on, in the times that we lived in. And, and before you go on that, it was a pretty generous standard, in my opinion. I mean, we at the center had submitted public comment when that was floated, and it could have been a whole lot tighter. It was not. It, in no way was it, well, if you end up using food stamps for two months, then you're, you know, will bounce your behind out of here. It wasn't anything like that. It was, like you said, likely to use it over 12 months, over a whole period of three years. I mean, it was, it was actually a pretty, in my opinion, a pretty generous standard. Absolutely. And in addition to that, there were certain benefits that were not taken into account, such as the refundable portion of child tax credits, the EITC, things of that. And didn't account welfare benefits accepted on in, nominally in the name of your U.S.-born children. Exactly. So it yeah. was, I mean, it was much narrower than the opponents made it out to be. So what happened to that? So Trump administration goes through the entire rulemaking process, which takes several years, and puts forward a, a final rule. Before that final rule could even go into effect, court comes in and blocks it with a nationwide injunction, which was 
the lawfare de jour um, throughout the Trump administration. Eventually, that goes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court tosses it, public charge, in effect. Then another district judge comes in and strikes it down on the merits. So then that, then the Seventh Circuit overturns that, so public charge is back on. Then you have a change in administration, and while it was apparent that the Biden team did not support the public charge rule, it would, it would appear that they would have to go through the same laborious rulemaking process to repeal the regulation. Because just so for background purposes, like you were saying, there's, there's a law that says what an agency has to go through, hoops it has to jump through to make a regulation. And once you jump through the last hoop, to undo that, another administration has to, supposed to have to jump through the same hoops all over again to undo it. Is that correct? That's what my understanding was until just recently when uh, apparently the Biden administration was able to just tell the Supreme Court, we don't want to defend this lawsuit any longer. So therefore, it is null and void. So, uh, you know, they've completely circumvented the, that process. You had a couple of state attorneys general try to intervene and basically defend the, the Trump era regulation. And the Ninth Circuit said, nope, you don't have standing to do that. We'll see if that makes it to the Supreme Court. But uh, essentially, the public charge rule that was defined by the Trump administration is not in effect right now. And uh, as the center has previously reported, a lot of immigrant-headed households use a lot of welfare benefits and just adds a burden onto the taxpayers when the standard has been, has been lowered. Now, what's the, and one thing that I always am fascinated by is this affidavit of support idea. What happened with regard to the affidavit of support? First of all, explain what that is, but also what did, in this first 100-day period, what did the administration do with regard to that? Sure. So the affidavit of support has a real tie-in to public charge, where specifically in the, in the family-based immigration context and in some employment-based, a, a would-be immigrant is required to have a sponsor. And so the affidavit of support is essentially that sponsor making a contract or an agreement with the United States government that says, as long as this affidavit of support is in effect, I, the sponsor, who is a U.S. citizen, U.S. national or, or green card holder, will ensure that this intending immigrant is essentially self-sufficient. I will, I will ensure that their livelihood exists at a certain level above the poverty level. And if the immigrant does access any welfare benefits that they're eligible for, I am on the hook to reimburse the taxpayer. So that way, it's a net zero for the taxpayers. That's the whole concept of affidavit of support. This was another rulemaking that the Trump administration that we pursued Unlike public charge, we didn't get the, the final rule published and in effect before there was the change in administration. Again, something like this is consistent with the requirements of the law, and it provided just better clarity to ensure that sponsors actually did have the means to, to, to support. Before they signed it. Before they contract. signed it. Yeah. Um, but the Biden administration has just decided to withdraw the rule altogether. So while that in, in and of itself does not remove the requirement of an affidavit of support, they, have a they took a follow-on action, which was to order USCIS officers during the interview to no longer say out loud what is literally the legal requirement that you, the sponsor, are on, are on the hook. And so they still have to sign the piece of paper, but they're, the USCIS is not allowed to tell them to reinforce the idea that, remember, you signed this piece of paper. Exactly. And so 
while the the legal lease is still on the document, you you may have a lot of sponsors who don't fully understand what what they are signing, and and then that does run the the concern is, well if if, if they don't know. Are they going to actually reimburse? Is, is the Biden administration really going to come after sponsors to be made whole? Will a sponsor now have the ability to claim ignorance and, and be let off the hook? Uh, right. it, it's just it's, it's a way of nullifying laws that they apparently just do not like, uh, as opposed to going through Congress to, to change them. Or even through the regulatory process. Or even process. through the regulatory exactly. process. Yes. The last thing I wanted to talk about, and there's more here in this report, um, at CIS.org on what the Biden administration has done in its first hundred days is the travel ban, because that got a lot of attention. You know, it's supposedly the Muslim ban is the way it was labeled. It's not, it's never what it was, and it certainly isn't what it turned into. If you could talk a little bit about what they did with regard to that and what that, you know, what does that mean? Sure. So the, the travel ban that the Trump administration implemented through two proclamations, basically prevented the entry of certain nationals of 13 countries that had been deemed high risk of, you know, state sponsors of terror or otherwise unreliable governments to produce verifiable documents. These are countries that had been identified by the Obama administration, the Bush administration, numerous administrations. But as part of, you know, what President Biden has said is a, a more compassionate version of immigration policy, he completely uh, rescinded the, the presidential proclamations that established the, these travel bans and essentially opened up the ability for, for aliens from these 13 high-risk countries to come to the United States, even though they cannot be properly vetted. They, the individual alien themselves may be a serious threat to the United States. And, and just recently, you had two, I believe it was Yemenis, detained at the southern border that were identified as national security threats. So it, it just seems to send a message that vigorous screening and vetting is a thing of the past. And in a perspective of inclusivity, they're willing to open up the, you know, the entry to the United States to, to those who, who may unfortunately be bad actors. And I think the point to make, just so people understand that this Muslim ban was never a Muslim ban, there were actually specific definable metrics, things that a country could do to get off that list. In other words, as far as the quality of their documents and cooperating with us in vetting. So it wasn't like, you know, you pray to Mecca, therefore you don't get in. It's that your documents are, you know, not meeting these standards. You're not cooperating with us. And if you do meet those standards, then you're off the list. In other words, it, and, and the point is that Biden got rid of that stuff. So what do you, I mean, what's the overall sort of, bottom line in what the Biden administration has done over its hundred days, the first hundred days? Sure. So there, there's certainly a, a divergent philosophy of immigration compared to the, the Trump administration. Say that you know, the, the Biden administration has wasted no time undoing much of what President Trump and his administration did, mostly at the border, as well as interior enforcement. But Thus far, we have not really seen any affirmative proposals coming out of the Biden administration sans just support for, for amnesty. Other than that, you don't see any proposed regulations on the immigration front that say this is how we think something should be defined or reinterpreted. We know what they are against, but as of right now, it's, it's really hard to see what exactly it is they are advocating for. So I think now moving forward, as they have 
been able to reverse a lot of Trump enforcement policies. It seems like they're now going to start pivoting to providing their own interpretations of, of various mechanisms of the legal immigration space. So maybe we'll have a second hundred days uh, <laughs> look or maybe more likely a first year of the administration look and see what the actual affirmative things that they're doing are. Like you said, they've suggested stuff in legislation, but that's kind of pie in the sky. The question is, what are they actually going to put down in regulations, publish in the Federal Register and try to make stick, which then the DeSantis administration will end four years from now, presumably. So anyway, thank you, uh, Rob's Rob Law from the Center for Immigration Studies, talking about his report which is on our website, cis.org, about President Biden's first 100 days in immigration. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. To end the podcast, I wanted to give a little rant about a misunderstanding of what is the actual problem at the border. There's disagreement about what is the issue that the government needs to solve. A lot of people are pointing to the humanitarian problems that we're seeing at the border. And those are real problems. Doctors Without Borders has reported that some two-thirds of these migrants who come through Mexico experience some kind of violence. One-third of women are victims of some kind of sexual violence. We've seen news reports at the border with some of these smugglers literally dropping toddlers from the top of the border fence down to the ground on our side. A 10-year-old was lost in the desert on our side and, and stumbled across the Border Patrol. Had no idea where he was. He'd been abandoned by the smugglers. And then, you know, in the detention facilities that the Border Patrol has that are not designed to hold kids or really anybody else for any long period of time. I mean, this is where the whole kids in cages thing came from. They don't use chain link fence now. They use clear plastics, but they're still kids in plastic. And it's, you know, it's a problem. I mean, they've got toddlers and play pens. I mean, it's outrageous. And also when they're delivered to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, to shelters that HHS runs, they're in limbo there often for quite a while. They're now setting up these centers and convention centers in various cities near the border. This is, you know, I mean, the humanitarian aspect of this is real. But is that the actual problem? Unfortunately, too many commentators, even a lot of Republicans, seize on the humanitarian problems as though that is the problem. And if that's the problem, then the solution is more capacity, faster processing, you know, better detention centers, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, or even something called the Central American Migrants Program, where they fly people directly from Central America over the border into the U.S. In other words, if the mess at the border and the humanitarian problems is the thing the government needs to solve, then that has one set of responses, which is, you know, more money, more centers, what have you. But that's not the real problem. The problem is the surge of illegal crossings at the border of people who, as we heard earlier from Rob, aren't really likely to ever be made to leave. A very few of these people who claim that they fear persecution or any of the minors, very few, I mean, a minuscule percentage of those people ever leave, even if they are turned down for asylum. In a sense, what we're seeing at the border is the Biden administration working with smugglers and the illegal immigrants themselves to confound the numerical limits 
that Congress places on immigration. Because this is not simply a matter of assessing people's asylum claims, which could have been done and was done much more effectively under the Trump administration, especially under the Remain in Mexico program, where you had to stay in Mexico, you got a yes or a no, and that was the end of it. Now, people are being released, they're never leaving. So the solution is not just faster processing and dealing with the humanitarian issues, which do have to be dealt with. Those are symptoms. They're not the problem. The solution is to stop the flow. And a variety of ways, things the Trump administration had done, as well as things that Congress needs to do and has not done, which we've written about extensively, getting rid of a number of these loopholes that are in further incentivizing people to come here. And so it's important, I think, especially for lawmakers and commentators not to get sucked into this trap of discussing the humanitarian crisis as the source of the problem rather than a symptom of the underlying problem, which is too many people being allowed to cross illegally. And that and stopping that flow is the actual solution that our lawmakers and people on the outside need to pursue. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy, our podcast from the Center for Immigration Studies. And we hope you will tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you.